last year, our book that we went through was the book of Romans, and we spent like 30-some weeks there. It was a great, great year. The book that we're going to be looking at in 2020, starting today, is the Gospel According to Mark. I announced, I announced this at a few gatherings earlier, and the question that I was asked was, why Mark and not Matthew or John or even Luke? For those three books are the more well-known of the Gospels. Uh, they're the ones that are more quoted. They're the ones that we are more familiar with, and that is true. Um, the Gospel of Mark is oftentimes a, a forgotten step uh, sibling of the four Gospels. But the reason why I believe the Gospel of Mark is necessary and helpful for us is because um, Matthew, Luke, and John, they're longer, and they oftentimes delve into deep theology, history, Old Testament prophecy, and there are parts of it that you can get bogged down on. For example, Matthew 5 through, 17, uh, 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, you can spend a few months just on that, on ethical kingdom living, and we could get so bogged down on the details of the trees of those three Gospels that we sometimes can get sidetracked of the main purpose of the Gospel. And the book of Mark is shorter. It's a little bit more concise. It gets to the point and it tries to answer the question that all four of the Gospels are trying to answer. And the question that it's trying to answer is, who is Jesus? And that is... The preeminent question that we need to answer, if a non-Christian were to ask me and, and that person had no knowledge of the Bible or does not have any kind of Christian background, and they ask me, I, I want to know about Christianity, what should I read? I would not point them to Genesis because they'd get lost after a few, chapter, a few books. I would not even uh, point them to Matthew or John, but the book that I would point them to is the Gospel of Mark. It is shorter, it is more uh, manageable, and it answers the question the best that we can, who is Jesus? And so for the year 2020, we'll spend 30-some weeks on the book of Mark. Today is the introduction. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. Next week, for about seven weeks, we're going to go through chapters 12 through 16. So we're going to go uh, do the end first. And then we're going to circle back and uh, deal with the first 11 chapters. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark? We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 20 today. And if you don't have your Bibles, or even if you do, the passage will be up on the screen. Uh, it's the ESV version. And if you look up on the screen, you'll notice that uh, the text is in white and there are certain texts in yellow. And there are five of these yellow sections, which are quotes, uh, parentheses. So they're quoting an individual or Jesus himself. And that becomes important because the first, set of, uh, first three sets of quotes are by others about Jesus who tells us who Jesus is. And the second two sets of quotes is by Jesus himself, what he's demanding. Okay? And so now uh, let me read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed 
clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching, saying, and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Lord, we come before you with our hearts bent in obedience to your word. May you awaken our souls from our slumber. May the Holy Spirit illuminate this passage for us so that we may have a clearer vision of who you are. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It begins in verse 1 with 12 simple words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John Piper says this of this particular verse. These 12 words as they are translated in English couldn't be more radical. I would argue that these 12 words cut a slice right down the middle of humanity because there are only actually two classes of people living on earth, people who believe these radical 12 words and people who don't. And if you believe them, they will change everything you think about yourself and every place you would place your hopes and dreams. And if you don't believe them, you think they are ridiculous and delusional and not worth the paper that they are printed on. So chapter one, verse one begins it says that it is of Jesus, that's a common name um, in that particular culture like John would have been today. Um, he, he is fully human, but he is also Christ, uh, the one who is the anointed one, the Messiah. They identify him as the son of God, and we will find out later that is a significant, significant title. It's a remarkable identification, and it is of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news, is uh, that of Jesus Christ. And in fact, Jesus Christ embodies the good news, one commentator writes. In Mark's understanding, therefore, the gospel is more than a set of truths or even a set of beliefs. It is a person, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there are two um, things that we are going to learn today, the identity of Jesus and, um, and, and his command 
the first is identity, and, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 20, um, mostly the yellow parts, meaning uh, the quotes or uh, what people have said about him. There are three different testimonies or witnesses of Jesus, uh, that, uh, the words of Isaiah the prophet, the words of John the Baptist, and the words of God the Father. Verses 2 and 3 are the words of Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is out of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Now, Isaiah was written about 800 years before Mark was written, and this is a, a, a particular time in Israel's history in which uh, the northern part of Israel had been captured. The southern part is remaining, but they're in peril. Uh, they've been disobedient to the Lord, and the prophet Isaiah is, is preaching uh, a, a message of, of doom and gloom for them. And in fact, Isaiah chapter one, uh, 1 through 39 is really, really a dark warning to the nation of what will happen to them, uh, a warning of judgment. But in chapter 40 is a turning point. The book pivots, and 40 and on is a message of a greater hope for the future. And so chapter 40, verse 3 of Isaiah talks about a messenger who will come. It will be a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And it says that this person will make ready the way of the Lord. Now, what is significant is this, that when we just read it in the English language, oftentimes when we read the, the Bible, the Lord can mean many things. It could be like a master, like a human master. It could be referring to a Lord, a, just another deity, with a, a God of a small g. But in the Bible... As I've said before, there's this name of God, Yahweh. And it is a holy name, and the Jews revered it so much that when it is printed on, uh, the, on their Bible, what they would do is they would re read it and not pronounce Yahweh because they believe that it's so holy. So make ready for the way of the... Make his pass straight. Later on, Christians wanted to honor that... Uh, that holiness, and they uh, used other vowels, and the word Jehovah used to be inserted instead of Yahweh. And so when the prophet Isaiah wrote of a particular person coming to prepare the way of the Lord, Isaiah understood that this person will be preparing the way of the Yahweh God of some sort. What we understand immediately following verse 4 as we pivot, that the person that is uh, speaking is John the Baptist, and he's preparing the way of Jesus. So Isaiah is saying this messenger will prepare the way for a Yahweh God. John the Baptist equates that person with Jesus. And so already the identity of Jesus, whom we understand him to be, is more than just a person. The words of John the Baptist um, Jesus comes, and he is baptized by John, and John is an interesting individual. He is a radical anti-establishment, a vegetarian. He's a one-outfit individual, and a prophet, a spokesperson of God. He is widely recognized by the nation of Israel by, as someone who has been sent by God, although the establishment didn't like what he was preaching he was bold, 
and he called for repentance because their nation has fallen into a malaise, a, a distant from their Yahweh God. They had forgotten that they're a covenant people. They oftentimes, people relied on their Jewishness, but John was calling them to repent of who uh, they were. And this is what he says of Jesus in verses 7 and 8. After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. And it's kind of an interesting picture. It says that John, uh, the greatest person to ever have lived, uh, Jesus called him that. But he himself uh, is not worthy he, 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 of even coming down. He's not qualified to t- untie the shoelaces of Jesus. I don't think John was referring to simply a social status. But I think he was saying something much more significant than that. John says that he baptizes with water, a, sim- a symbolic religious act that uh, signifies something more permanent, spiritual, and real. I can baptize in water, but one is coming who, can, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I can move people into water, but there will be one who will come and move the Holy Spirit into people. And that is an act that only God can do. In the Old Testament, that would be something reserved only for God and not even the greatest of prophet or the priest. And so what John the Baptist is saying is this that this person, Jesus, is not simply a greater version of who he is. He is not simply a better version of a prophet or a teacher or a moral person. He is categorically different. The final testimony is that by God the Father. Jesus is baptized by John. Three things occurred. The heavens open up, it says. In verse 10, and the word that Mark uses for opening up is the same word that is used when Jesus was crucified. For those of you who are Bible scholars, it says that the curtain in the temple was torn in two, divided into two. And so Mark uses this word twice in the, new, uh, in the book of Mark. When the heavens opened up, when Jesus was baptized, and when Jesus was crucified, the curtains being opened up. The second thing that occurs is that the Holy Spirit, it says, descends upon Jesus like a dove. It is not simply a, a subjective feeling that Jesus had, but something that others could observe. And the third event is the witness of the Father. It is God the Father speaking audibly in such a way that others can hear. And this is the second time in the gospel in, in which God the Father speaks in the presence of uh, Jesus, the Son. The other instance is in the transfiguration. In both instances, Jesus is called his Son. You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. You know, we may simply think that it is a, an expression of affection to Jesus, but what God is saying here is so much more than that. What God is expressing is a unity uh, between him and his son. 
unity in kind. Uh, the term son of God in our particular culture is, has been so normalized that we're not surprised by it. And you and I might say, I'm a son of God, you're a daughter of God, ex- expressing that we are perhaps creation, which is true. Even non-believers are creations of God. And we are adopted uh, sons and daughters of God if you're in Christ, and that is true. But there's something uniquely different when God says of Jesus that he is the son of God. Now, in that particular culture, those who are much more understanding of, of monotheism and how it's different from the polytheism that existed in the, in the world, and when someone claimed to be the son of God in this way, it was something so much more significant than the way that we receive it. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus is on trial by the religious leaders. These are the people who understand, who understood the Bible, who took it so much more seriously than you and I. I, I don't know if you understand that even as Christians, we are flippant with the Word of God. When um, I remember a long time ago, I had, uh, my, my daughter had a, a, a friend who was of an Orthodox Jewish faith. We had her over for a play date or something. I forgot if it was her or him, I forget. But it doesn't matter when they're really young, right? And this child uh, had such an uh, Orthodox Jewish uh, faith that when we asked, do you want to eat something? And said, yes. Do you want some chicken nuggets? Okay. I can I ask my mom? You know, she had to ask her mom. Yeah, I can eat chicken nuggets at this heathen home. Um, but they say, okay, but please don't put cheese on the same plate with the chicken nuggets. And that comes from a, like a, a Jewish um, understanding that you shall not um, boil a kid in his mother's milk. It's, it's a weird, like a, a nuanced portion of scripture. Um, this child um, said when they drop a Bible, they would, um, they would pick it up, kiss it, and, and pray forgiveness because they dropped the Bible. I think sometimes as Protestant evangelicals, we have a flippancy about the Bible. Uh, these priests and scribes and Pharisees, although we may look back at them and say, call them religious, but they understood the scripture and, and its impact. Jesus was on trial, and these religious high, priest, uh, uh, high priests asked him in Mark chapter 14, verse 61, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are, are, do you, are you claiming to be the Son of God? Jesus answers, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I am what you say, the Son of God. We may receive that, okay, what's the big deal? And this is how the the high priest and the religious leader understood Jesus' answer. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. They understood Jesus' claim to be Son of God as the same as Jesus saying, I am God. We, we need to stone him. Uh, they all condemned him as deserving of death. But I want you to understand how important this is. This identification of Jesus as the Son of God. In Mar- Matthew chapter 16, also in Mark chapter 8, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is, is the question that was asked in the little intro video. Who do you say that I am? And the disciples said, well, some say that you're, the, you're John the Baptist, 
maybe a resurrected John the Baptist, which would be incredible. Some say that you're Elijah or in the spirit of Elijah or maybe a, a born-again Elijah or a born-again Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. What, what the people are saying, Jesus, you're one of the, the top five. You're one of the goats of the prophetic world. You're like the LeBron James and the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's of the prophets. And you, should be, you should be encouraged, Jesus. People think so highly of you. Jesus is listening to his disciples and saying, that's, that's nice that people regard me so highly as one of the best human beings to ever have walked on earth. Because that's what they were saying. But who do you say that I am? I understand that others say that I'm one of the best teachers, one of the most moral people, one of the most religious persons to ever have existed. Yes, that's fine. But who do you say I am? And it's through this question, this is the pivot point in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. This is the pivot point, and this is the point that Jesus had been waiting for. He spent all, these time, all this time with his disciples so they would come to this point, that they would understand this. Who do you say that I am? And it is to this Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're not one of the greatest human beings to ever have walked on the face of the earth. You're not the best teachers, the best moral person. You are categorically different. You're the son of the living God. And it is then that Jesus says, you, you got it now. Now you understand. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And it is then that Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's a little bit of debate in the Christian, the small sea world, as to what this rock means. Some uh, In the, the Catholic tradition, they believe its rock is referring to Peter, and upon this papacy, meaning this, uh, this religious handing down of authority that the church shall um, be built. Evangelicals or Protestants believe, no, no, uh, what what Jesus was talking about was the truth that was just revealed, that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is not simply a, a good version of a human being, but he is somehow God and man together. And upon this truth, the identity of Jesus, God, fully God, fully man, that the church shall be built and no gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Listen, Jesus is not simply a more accurate version of a prophet, a smarter version of a scribe, a more moral version of a Pharisee, or a more powerful version of a king. He is the Son of God who took off his divinity in uh, order to be a man, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We have to understand who Jesus is. If we don't fully understand who Jesus is, or if we don't continue to strive to understand who Jesus is, we will always fall short in some way. You know, when we understand who someone is, it impacts how we relate not only to that person, but even who we are as individuals. A couple of weeks ago, right before I went up to, came out to preach, some young man who was sitting behind, right behind me, I was, I was just, about, just about 30 seconds ready to come up. They were doing the announcement and the little video was showing. Kobe, Brian died? Is the whisper that I heard. 
And I thought he was kind of like April Fool joke. And I said, what? And he showed me on his smartphone. And I, I, I didn't quite register. I had to come up and preach. I was, so I came up, I was preaching. And, it's, and I, had, I, had, I had so many people looking at their smartphones that whole sermon. <laughs> All the men. I thought, wow, like people are really into the word. Praise God. <laughs> it wasn't until afterward I realized, oh, okay, that did really happen. And that's what they were doing. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, lamentations, I guess. I guess that's a good word. A couple of weeks before his death, a friend of mine, uh, Dave Gibbons, is a pastor in Santa, and, and uh, he had a uh, leadership little retreat, about 15 people. And they were having their meeting or training, as usual. He said, we have a special guest. And in walked Kobe Bryant. And for the next hour, he just sat there and, and just gave Mamba mentality leadership advice. And I, every single person, and, and when he walked in the room, I, I saw a little video of it, he, he showed, uh, he posted it, the room just changed. And people were riveted. Um, you know, it, it, could, it could have been, if, an, if another tall, dark, good-looking, rich person came in, I don't know if they would have given him as much attention. But because... It was Kobe Bryant, and they understood fully who he was when Kobe, Kobe said, you know, if you really want to succeed, this is what... And people who weren't even basketball fans knew that this person has achieved greatness. They paid attention. They were, they were writing everything down, and they were just on the edge of their seats because they understood who was talking. Do you understand that if we read the Gospels just as good moral teachings and don't fully understand the author behind it, it simply becomes good advice and nothing more. We have to fully understand that Jesus is more than a good teacher or more than a more moral person. But he is God and man somehow came and he is the solution. And if we understand who he is, we understand the invitation that he gives us. There are two sets of words that we find Jesus speaking. The first sets of uh, first words were found in are found in verse fifteen. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Theologians differ as to how fully the kingdom of God is right now, but what they all concur is this: that the kingdom of God, that particular era, starts when Jesus came. And he says to all of us. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel essence is this, that we're more sinful than we would like to admit. I, I, I don't know if you just accidentally walked in here. If you are on the verge of, of leaving your spouse. I, I don't know if, you're on the, uh, if you came here, man, just really broken over your private sins. And you kind of know, or maybe you've been, you're here having been at church for years and you've had your quiet time this, um, this week, or you're, you're on your Bible reading plan, you feel really good about yourself. I think for the unbeliever as well as old believers, I think the initial part of the gospel that we're more sinful than we'd like to admit. When, when Paul says of himself, I am the the worst of sinner or the least of the apostles. I don't think he was just saying it for the sake of false humility. 
I think he really believed it because he saw his own wickedness. I don't think we understand how broken we are. And so Jesus says, not only to those who do not know him, but those who have been at church a long time, repent. And if we encounter Jesus and, and we don't just fall on our knees and see our own sinfulness, we don't quite understand and believe in the gospel. The second part of the gospel is not only are we more sinful than we would like to admit, but God loves us beyond what we can imagine. His gift to us is immeasurable. And so we cling on to the person of Jesus. This is not simply true of salvation, but every part of our lives. What does a, a, a person do when there's deep hurt in a broken relationship? It says, repent and believe. Repent of the part that you are guilty of. Of blame shifting everything to the other party. Of saying, so what they did that, so that's why it's justified in me doing what I do. Repent and believe that God can restore, God can heal. That, that, yeah, perhaps you can't control what the other person does, but you can bend your knees and seek help and forgiveness for your part. What do we do when we feel completely overwhelmed by the pressures of life? Repent and believe. Because there are times when we make an idol out of work, or what other people think of us. And so we strive and strive and strive, and it never feels like it's quite enough. And we resent people when they don't meet our expectation. It says, repent and believe. Believe that our identity is not built upon what you do at work or how other people perceive you, but how much Jesus loves you. He values you so much that he climbed upon that cross, even if you were the only person to have ever lived. Do you see the pattern here? The, go the gospel of Jesus Christ solicits us to respond in repentance and belief. In every sphere of our life, Jesus tells us uh, to repent and believe, seek the gospel. And there are times when we're kind of confused, but well, how does this relate to the gospel? And that's why we delve into the person of Jesus Get to know him more and more throughout the gospel. Well, how does he relate to someone who's of the opposite gender or someone who's of, of a different race? How, how does he respond to someone who hates him? How does he respond to, to unfair taxes? How does he respond to authority who is unfair? And as we lean into Jesus, we learn a little bit more about what it means for us to repent and believe. His second set of words are found in... Verse 17, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. It's an open-ended invitation. Most of us, when, when, when we hear Jesus' command, follow me, we would say, well, where to? For how long? What's my job description? What's my compensation? Jesus doesn't qualify, just says, follow me. Do you understand something? If, if Jesus says to us, follow me, and our answer is, I will follow you only if, only if, then we're not really following Jesus, but we're following the job description that we, that's acceptable to us. Do you understand that? 
when Jesus says, follow me, then we need to be, and if we understand who Jesus is, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, who loves us unconditionally, that we ought to follow him unconditionally, trusting that he loves me and, and seeks my good more than I even love me and seek my good. I'll follow you. And it is interesting that if we're just reading, the parallel will be follow me and go become fishers of men. That's how we would have understood it to be. But it says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Let me do the good work in you so that you are like a clay that I mold into something useful for kingdom's sake. But I know oftentimes uh, we follow Jesus or so we think, how come God's not using me? I, you know, I would, I would point you to the, the principle of the talent. Oftentimes, God calls us to follow him. Jesus calls us to follow him. And we say, I will follow you, but I, I don't like this thing that you're asking me to do, so I'll wait for this other opportunity. Jesus says, I'll give you this one talent. I'll give you the two talent. You're responsible not for what other people are doing with their talents, not what you want to do, but simply what's been given to you. You're only responsible to be good and faithful. And I would, I would challenge us, following Jesus is simply being obedient to what he's called us to do, nothing more and nothing less. Let me end with this. Why is it that sometimes we've been in the church a long time, we come this morning, we sang some wonderful, wonderful words. I love King of Kings. That's a great song. Great, powerful theological words. Um, why is it that we sometimes open up the Bible, whether it be in our devotions or in a, on a Sunday morning, and say, gosh, oh, this Pastor Steve talking again. Can we get someone else? Why is it that the Word of God seems stale to us at times? Why is it that prayer seems so hard at times? And, listen carefully, but it wasn't always like that. And you remember the time when, when worship seemed fresh, when the word seemed alive and prayer seemed real? Why is it that it doesn't seem like that at times? B.B. Warfield, an old theologian, said this. Listen especially for those of us who've been in the church a long time. One of the dangers of theological education is that the radical glories of the gospel just become so familiar to you that you lose your sense of awe. And in losing your sense of awe, you lose your thankfulness. And in losing your thankfulness, you lose your worship. And in losing your worship, you're just a step away from idolatry. I would contend with you that perhaps the reason why worship seems cold, prayer seems unreal, um, the word seemed uh, distant to you, to me, is because somehow we've compartmentalized Jesus. We've marginalized him. We, we've inte intellectualized him. We still say, well, I am a Christian and I worship Jesus with a small J. But he's not near the son of God that caused the religious leaders to say, oh, stone him. How dare he 
claimed to be God, they understood sometimes better than we would. If we really understood who Jesus is, our hearts should sing, our hearts should worship, our hearts should want to obey. And that all of our junk, all of our issues, we'd bring at the feet of Jesus.